Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. Just to start, to sort of set the context, I think it's very important. You know, one thing I really think is important and lots of us think is important is that we keep our word. That when we say we're going to do something, that we do it. And... um, Oh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because we think about, say, politicians and we think, um, oh, yeah, um, they're really bad at making promises and not keeping them grandiose things, but rarely do them. And there was a really famous one, a bit way back now, but George H.W. Bush, that's the older George Bush president, made a famous quote at the Republican, 1998 Republican Party Congress as he was about to be their candidate for president. And he said... Read my lips, no new taxes. And of course, you can guess what's going to happen. He went into government, uh, events took over, and they raised taxes. And then Bill Clinton used that to his advantage. He um, had some attack, what they call attack ads they have in America, um, with him speaking those very words and little words going underneath saying what he hadn't done. And um, he lost that election, oddly enough, to Bill Clinton. And I, and I think, to be fair, most politicians are just normal people like us, and um, they like to keep their promises. There may be a few that... Oops. That... I must watch where I'm walking. Um, who don't. Who maybe they just love making promises because they think people will believe them. But anyway. Um, but I was also thinking about my children. Um, when Becca and Dan were younger... Uh, they were little tiny ones, they would really work hard at me to get me to promise things. And the reason for that was they knew generally, if I said, I promise we're going to do this or you're going to have that, then, you know, it would happen. And um, the usual thing is, and I know many of you are parents probably do the same, you'd say, well, we could do that, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, depending on what happens. Um, But, you know, and the reason I... Promise, you know, wouldn't promise, wasn't because I was a mean dad who didn't like to spend my money or do whatever they wanted to do. It was because I didn't want them to grow up with a dad. You know, I'm telling them about God our Father. I'm saying he keeps his promises. And then I turn around and not do the same. That's not a good thing. And in the working environment, in my line of work, you are asked to do something by a certain date. That's quite a common thing. And um, there's a real temptation to just say, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, Even sometimes when it's unrealistic. Because there's a a real desire to please the person that you're talking to, whether that's another work colleague or a customer, to look good at the time. But I've learned by experience over the years to be very careful about that. And to only agree if I'm really sure I can do it, and do it as well as they want me to. And I've found actually that does pay off, because people then trust you. And they know when you say you're going to do something, you'll do it. And they don't keep nagging you and asking you whether it's going to be done on that day. And um, the story we're going to look at today is about a man. And he made a promise, a very rash promise. And then he regretted that promise. The consequences of following through on that promise were awful and terrible. And it was devastating both to him and to someone he loved. But right through this strange, difficult, tricky story, 
with a very, frankly, offensive outcome. There's a, lot that, there's a lot in it that tells us about the gospel of grace that will both challenge us and encourage us in equal measure. So before we, we look at it, I'm just going to pray and ask God to help us. Yeah, Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that, that every part of your word has value and is worth studying, looking at, understanding, grappling with and learning from. And Lord, I pray, this is a tricky subject, and I just pray that you'll be with us. Help me, guide me, give me the wisdom that comes from you of what to focus on and how to um, bring your truth. Pray that your truth will be revealed. And I pray for all of us that you help us to, to hear what you're saying to us, what um, challenges you're giving us, what encouragements you're giving us. And, and Lord, I just pray that your word will go out and it will have the impact that you want it to have. And I thank you for your word too. And I thank you for being with us now. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Cool. Right. Now, this is a very long passage and I'm going to be missing bits out. And I'm going to be sort of summarising a few bits and focusing on what I hope are the key parts. And um, the, the story that we're looking at is kind of bookended by five other judges. And... Um, Many people call these minor judges, a bit like they do with the minor prophets. And it's, it's kind of for the same reason, really. It's not because they were necessarily less important. It's because their verses are very small and there's not a lot said about them. And um, there are, there's not a lot said about them. We know what their names were. We generally know where they were born or where they came from. And interestingly enough, for about two or three of them, we know how many children they had, and it was quite large numbers. We're talking about people with 30 children. Um, so two of them, a guy called Toller and a guy called Jer, were judges before the story we're going to look at, and three of them were after, guys called Ibsan, Ilon, and Abdon. But they, they're quite helpful because they kind of show that the pattern is continuing. As we've been looking at judges, there's this real pattern, this real cycle of... The people of Israel fall away. They then cry out to God because God brings judgment on them. Somebody is oppressing them. Uh, God raises up a leader, a judge, to save them. And, um, and then they fall away again. And it goes on and on and on, this, this same cycle. And we're going to start by reading from Judges chapter 10. It's going to be up on the screen here, but also if you've got a Bible or electronic device... You can follow in that as well. And we're going to start reading from Judges 10, verse 6. And I'll read it out. So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So this time... Uh, the people that we're talking about are called the Ammonites. And uh, they were called that because they were the descendants of a guy called Ammon, who was one of the two children of Lot. And Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And Abraham 
was the, obviously the father of the Jews. So there was a kind of a cousinly relationship there. But that didn't seem to make a lot of difference. Um, this was hundreds of years afterwards. And they had moved into Gilead. This is land beyond the Jordan, the first bit of land that the Israelites captured before they came and took the rest of the promised land on the other side of the Jordan about 300 years earlier. And now after 18 years of occupying this area, Gilead, the Ammonites had decided to move against the rest of Israel across the Jordan. And at this point, they cry out to God for mercy. And we can hear what, how God responded in verse 10. So the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amicalites and the Maonites, that's probably the Midianites, oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods who you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So as we've already seen many times in these judges' story. That when the people of Israel are faced with a dire situation, when everything seems lost, they cry out to God. I mean, they seem to have got it this time. They seem to have understood why. They seem to have understood it's because they turned away from God. They were following these other gods. But God at this point seems to be quite reluctant. He doesn't really seem to want to save them. And he actually starts to remind them of the many other times that this has happened and how, yep, yeah, they got saved, they turned back to him, but as soon as everything was all right, they seemed to have turned away and not needed God anymore. And there's this kind of quite ironic thing at the end where God says, well, that's okay, you need help, go and turn to those false gods, they can save you instead. And of course, I think they knew that they couldn't. And they begin to understand that in every sense, what was happening to them was not a kind of a random thing, and they knew they deserved it. And we read in verse 15 and 16, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So it seems that the people of Israel had truly repented this time. They kind of acknowledged their sin and, they'd left, and they were kind of saying, God, we're in your hands. We're leaving it to you. And they stopped worshipping the false gods and they started worshipping again. And God is moved to save them yet again. And there's a bit of a danger here as you read this story because it can look like what the Israelites did was what saved them. That as they repent, then they were saved. And... Um, I think we've got to be a bit careful with that. And, and really reading the whole of, of Judges, we can see that God generally saved them before they even turned to him. And um, I think God would have saved them anyway. But I think there was a bit of a thing going on here. God really wanted them to get to grips and understand kind of the seriousness of what they've done um, and their real need to change, not in a superficial way. Because repentance really is not a superficial thing. Repentance isn't just feeling bad about what you've done. Repentance is actually saying, this is stupid and I shouldn't be doing this. And then 
And that's a, kind of, that's a bigger response, isn't it? And I think God was kind of teasing that out with them because he wanted to restore not just their situation, the fact that they were in a dire situation, he wanted to restore their relationship with him as well. Because actually, in many ways, that was much, much more important. So now we're going to look at the actual chap. We're going to look at the story of Jephthah, and we're going to see what God did with him. So we're going to carry on reading in verse 17. See, the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah, which was fairly close by. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the Israelites are in position, they're ready to go, but they haven't got a leader. Or have they? Let's read verse. We're now moving on to chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead was kind of a name, sort of place, but also the leader of those people. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Jephthah was the obvious leader, the military man. But there was a bit of an issue. They'd chucked him out. They'd got rid of him. Because he wasn't the, although he was the child of the leader, he wasn't the child of his wife, um, kind of an illegitimate man born out of wedlock. And um, his other brothers, half-brothers, had driven him out and got rid of him. They forced him to live in another land. And the only people that were collecting up with him were kind of the worthless men, the riffraff, the men who'd been rejected by society. But he, he was also known as a, great, as a good leader, as an effective leader. And they knew he was the right man to lead them. So they swallow their pride and they go and see him. And we'll read how Jephthah responded to that. So again, after a time, the, Israelite, the Ammonites made war against Israelites. And when the Ammonites did this and made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah then said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah wasn't impressed, was he? Oh, you only want me because you're in trouble. That often happens, doesn't it? And um, because he knows that the same people who are coming, cap in hand to him, were the same people who'd said, not that long ago, you're not, you're not one of us, go away. And they chucked him out. 
And to protect himself from future rejection, he gets them to agree before the whole of the rest of the people of Israel, and even more importantly, before God, that even after he's dealt with the Ammonites, even after the victory, he would still be their leader and they wouldn't reject him. And I I think, you know, his response is understandable, isn't it? From the way he's been treated. And it's interesting, actually. Many commentators draw out a parallel here. Because if we think back to how God had spoken to the Israelites, it's very much the same thing. Oh no, here you go again. You know, you'll have me while you've got a problem. But as soon as everything's all right, you don't want me. And, um, you know, when you think about that, you have to say, is that the way I treat you too, God? You know, that's a, that's a challenge I felt certainly to think about for myself as well. Often, am I like that God? Do I just want God involved in my life when I need him? When I'm in trouble? When I've got a problem? Or, as it rightly should be, should God be involved in all of my life, in every part of my life? Now, we're going to skip over a bit. We're not going to look at Judges 11, 12 to 28. There's kind of a long, protracted bit where Jephthah basically tries a bit of um, sort of negotiation, not by email, but by message. But it's kind of the same thing. So basically, he says one thing, they say another thing. That all comes to nothing. And then, obviously, they have to go and fight. But this is the tricky bit of the story, because then Jephthah makes a very rash promise. So it starts, in, we're moving on to chapter 11, verse 29. And then it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave, him, gave them into his hand. And he struck from Meroah to the neighbourhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Keramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So we often hear about this, that when God chose someone to lead, he would put his spirit upon them. And that was a recognition of kind of God's anointing, of God's blessing and God's power at work with him. And he goes to attack the Ammonites. But we're not told why. And we kind of have to surmise a bit really what was going on here. Because despite the fact that he knew God was with him, despite the fact that he knew that God had chosen him to be leader, he then makes this, he makes this uh, vow, this promise to sacrifice the first thing to come out of his house. And um, I don't know whether that's... We've obviously seen the story of Gideon. I don't know whether that was because he had a a lack of confidence. He wasn't sure. He was a bit uncertain. Maybe he was a bit worried about how he was going to be treated by the other guys afterwards. I don't know what it was. But for some reason, he makes his vow. And he says, right, God, I'm going to give you whatever comes out of my house first. Now, at this point, we don't know who who or what that is going to be. But it's worth pointing out that vows to God were taken very seriously. They were voluntary things, but they had to be followed. And I've quoted a couple of verses. I've got a couple of verses from one from Numbers and one from Deuteronomy. So in Numbers 30, verse 1 to 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribe of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. 
If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 22, Moses says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. See, making a vow was very serious, but it's very careful as well. If you read what it says in Deuteronomy, God was never saying you have to make a vow. It was a voluntary thing. It was a choice thing. And, um, but not keeping a vow was seen as sin. It was seen as wrong. And it meant serious consequences. And unfortunately for Jephthah, the consequences were actually awful. So we're going to read in verse 34. So Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months And she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileite for four days in the year. And you can't imagine what it must have been like for him. As he comes to his house, his heart sank that his only child, his beloved daughter, was going to be the thing that he had to sacrifice. You know, we we hear about him, he he rends his clothes, he's distressed, he's upset. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that, you know, hopefully, coronavirus withstanding, we will be in Malaysia in a few weeks and we're going to be at the wedding of my daughter who's probably a little older than this girl would have been, to be frank. She probably was a lot younger, probably more like a teenager. But, you know, just how I would feel if something like that was going to happen to her. And even worse, because of something stupid that I had said. Something that had come out of my mouth. I mean, I just, I just can't imagine it. You know, it's horrible, isn't it? And, um, but he's stuck, because he's made this promise to God. He said to God, I'm going to do this. And that meant he had to do it. And there's loads of questions about this. And I, I really don't feel that I can answer all of them. Um, it's a big subject. But, you know, there are questions like, did God want Jephthah to make a promise like this? I, I don't think so. 
You know, he'd already raised him up as a judge. He'd already given him an anointing of his spirit. And I, I really don't think this was something that God was asking for him. And, and God didn't need this young girl to die so that he could save the people of Israel. That was a pagan thing. That was definitely not a thing of God. And, um, and there's no hint in the passage that God had actually asked him of that. And there are kind of all sorts of other questions. You know, well, why did God you know, let him do that? Why didn't God let him off? And there's all sorts of issues here because there's, you know, the first thing is that God keeps his word. And that's something he expects of all of us. So there's all of that wrapped up in this as well, isn't there? And um, I was thinking about this as well. I mean, God has to watch us as human beings do a lot of stupid things, a lot of bad things, a lot of wrong things. And he doesn't stop us, does he? And often those things that we do impact other people. They often impact the people closest to us, the people that we love, the people that we care about. And they have to suffer because of the bad choices that we make. But also there's an eternal perspective involved as well. You know, I'm sure God didn't want this to happen and it's very sad and he certainly wouldn't want to cut off the life of this young girl. But we also have to look at her life from an eternal perspective as well. And I'll talk a bit, bit more about that in a minute. There's a lot going on here, isn't there? God, first of all, had to honour his law that said that a vow that must be honoured. And this is kind of part of the greater condition of man, that God actually gives us the responsibility to make decisions and then suffer the consequence of those decisions, which sometimes are great, but sometimes are not. And um, God has made this choice not to intervene every time that we do something stupid or that we do something wrong. Even in a case like this when the results were as terrible as they were. And there's a, there's a kind of a more eternal thing as well. The greater truth is that one day we are all going to die. And actually what happens to us when we die is much more important in a way than what happens to us when we live. Because there's this eternal thing about, are we going to live with God forever or not? Or are we going to die? And in a way, we need to look at the life of this young girl in the light of that. And actually, I'm, I'm encouraged by, her pos by the way she responded, by the way she instantly said to her father, no, you've got to keep your vow that this was a girl who loved God and honoured him. And I have every confidence that her eternal situation was that she then ended up with living with God forever. But that's still, it's still a tricky story, isn't it? Um, now, going back to his story as well, is there's an interesting thing to note here. We're going we're gonna to jump over. A, there's a story about the Ephraimites, who we may have heard about in... Gideon's time, they'd come looking for a fight, ending up having a civil war with the rest of Israel, and they get defeated. And God looked after Jephthah in this case, didn't let him be defeated by them. And God didn't stop using Jephthah, even though he did this, ter you know, this terrible, awful thing. And uh, the last verse we're going to look at in Judges 11, verse 7, it says that Jephthah ruled Israel for, for six years, for another six years. And then he died and he was buried in his city. And this is, a, this is a real thing about God's grace, actually, that God still uses us 
God still prospers those who he calls to serve him, even when they get it terribly wrong. Another story is David and what he did with Bathsheba and how he ended up basically putting her husband in the line of fire so he would get murdered. You know, David is one of the people that we're told to follow, you know, honour. He's a descendant, you know, Jesus was descended from him and yet he did this terrible thing. But God still often in his grace will use us despite the fact that we get it wrong and do things wrong. And I think we can look at things like this and say, well, why is this in the Bible? Why is this there? And Paul talked about scripture and we often quote these verses about where, we say, where he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, all scripture, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And at the point he was making this quote, the only scripture that existed was the Old Testament. So that includes this story. And it's interesting, isn't it? How does a story like this, where someone ends up sacrificing their daughter because of something they said, help us? Why is it in God's word? What does it teach us? How, how does it correct us? How does it enable us to live a better life as a Christian? I mean, there's a simple application in there. Be careful about what you promise. Be people of your word. But there's more to it than that, I think. And I think there are two really strong elements of the gospel in this story. Two elements about the good news about Jesus. And one of them is in the kind of conversation between God and the Israelites and Jephthah and the Israelites. And that is about the fact that how God and Jephthah treated the Israelites well despite the way they behaved. Despite the kind of people that they were. And... um, this kind of gets onto the undeserved nature of God's grace, of mercy. Some, some people call this the scandal of grace because it's so undeserved and it's in, in some ways it makes no sense at all. But I also think the terrible sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter and, and the offence that it, would cause, you know, it causes us reminds us of an even greater and more offensive sacrifice, that of Jesus on the cross as he died for us. See, the whole of Judges is really a continual reminder of the scandal of grace. The grace that God gave us through what Jesus did for us. And there's nothing about us, nothing about what we do, nothing about how we behave that says that we deserve the mercy that that he's given us. And you know, even when we're saved, unfortunately, we often still behave at times which really, frankly, mean that God should take his grace away from us, and yet he doesn't. You know, I I think we often like to think, well, actually, I'm all right. I'm okay. But we're not. And Paul Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23, we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of 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 the mercy of God and deserve the consequence of that, which is sin. And yet, as he then again tells us in Romans 6, 23, we still get the free gift of eternal life. The scandal of grace is that God shows us mercy even when he knows we're going to abuse it again and again and again. And of course that grace came at a terrible, awful cost. 
Jesus, the man who, who was the only person who ever lived a perfect life without sin, the man who was God himself, went to the cross and took all of our sin and shame. And, um, you know, stories like this, what happened to that girl, that should annoy us. That should offend us. That's not a, you know, it's not wrong for us to be shocked by that. It's not wrong for us to have problems with that. You know, because it was wrong. But, you know, sometimes for us as Christians, if we've been Christians a long time, if we've been followers of Jesus a long time, sometimes the offence of the cross and what Jesus did, kind of, we lose it, don't we? And stories like this help us to remind us of just how wrong it was that Jesus went on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross. You know, effectively, I'll say it about myself, but it kind of applies to all of us, I was Jephthah to Jesus. He went on that cross because of the sin that I did, because of the fact that I rebelled against God and thought what I thought was better than what he said. So I was like Jephthah to him. And, um, you know, some Christians struggle with this. Some Christians struggle with the, what they call the substitutionary, whatever it is. Uh, the thing that means that Jesus went on the cross for us and took our sins. Some people are so offended by that, they kind of think, that can't be true, that can't be right. But I think, I think the thing that they forget or they, they don't focus on is the fact that Jesus chose that. Because Jesus was kind of for as well to himself and he was also the daughter Jesus took our sin and shame on the cross he took that offence so that we could be saved hallelujah Jeff and, and when I think about this I think what do we do what, what should our response be to that and I think I think it's fairly simple really it's a simple gospel as someone prayed in the prayer meeting this morning that when we think about God's undeserved grace to us when we think about the offence of what Jesus did on the cross, the key thing is not to waste it, it's not to ignore it and do something about it and for some this morning that might be not to waste the salvation that he freely offers at no cost and grab it with both hands Jesus gave up his life he took the penalty of all of our sin on the cross, all we can ever do wrong. And that changes everything. Instead of being separated from God and not having a relationship with him and looking forward to a life away from God and a death without him, we now can have a relationship with God the Father. We're now children of God because of that. And that's something that's available to all of us. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't done it, to grab that with both hands. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that all we have to do is turn to him and let him lead, let him be the boss, let him be Lord and King in our life and be saved and set free. It makes no sense. It's, it's bonkers. It is bonkers, but it's true. Praise God. And then, and then for all of us, really... When we think about what Jesus did for us, when we think about the amazing grace of God, when we think about the cost and the offence of his sacrifice, we, we mustn't waste it. You know, the, the lesson here is don't be like the Israelites. It's a very simple lesson. 
You know, don't just go to God when you're in trouble. Don't just go to God when you need him. Let him be involved in all of your life and let him change you. Let him make you more like Jesus every day. And the danger here is, of course, don't, that isn't right. Yeah, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be like him. You know, we don't do it by trying harder. No, we turn to him and he comes through his spirit and he comes and helps us to do something which we just cannot do in our own strength. We have a call to be lived differently. We have a call to holy living. And that doesn't save us, but it's, it's respecting what Jesus has already done and not wasting it. It's, it's actually taking hold of what he's done. Let's, let's be different because we can, because he's enabled us to do that. And let's not waste the benefit that brings. I'm going to pray. Yeah, Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every part of your word is there for a purpose. It's the purpose is to tell us about Jesus. The purpose is to reveal the truth about Jesus. To, yeah, show us the state that we're in without him. But even more amazingly, show us the amazing grace that what Jesus did on that cross as he died for us has brought us. That we can know you. That we can enjoy you. That we can be your children. That despite the fact that you know we're going to let you down, despite the fact we know you know what we're like, you're just going to keep pouring out your blessings and your mercy and your grace upon us. And Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for that. I want to pray that, that even in the midst of a story like this that we struggle to understand, we struggle to cope with the emotional side of it, we struggle to cope with exactly why it happened, but Lord, there's, there's a truth buried in it, the truth about Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy. So I just pray that we'll all be able to respond to that now. That we're to just remember again afresh just how good you've been to us and enjoy all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.